Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. It's my pleasure and honor to welcome to the Bully Pulpit Podcast, David Fleischer, who is the director of the Leadership Lab at the Los Angeles LGBT Center, pioneering a new approach to voter persuasion called deep canvassing, changing voters' minds in a lasting way. David, it's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure for me, Josh. So, your business is in L.A. What seems to be most in the press is this uh, method, this process of deep canvassing. So, can you tell us what deep canvassing even is? It's one human being talking to another human being about something that matters and both of them being affected. That's really the gist of it. And we engage in deep canvassing because we would like to help people reflect on some of their cruelest opinions and consider revising them. The notion of confronting people with their own cruelty is a challenge. We don't really confront. What do you do? We ask them what it is that matters to them. We listen to what they have to say. People usually begin with their opinions. Usually the opinions offer them a form almost of reputational protection. What does that mean, reputational protection? I think they're very concerned that we or anybody else would judge them unkindly. Because we're seeking out people who uh, we disagree with. And even though we don't come to the door saying we disagree with you, usually it's pretty apparent to them in many, many ways that we might have a different point of view than they do. And so the same way that you might not want to be in a situation where you fear there would be an argument, a lot of voters might begin wondering, is this going to be an argument? And what we make very clear is that's not what it is. When you engage in this conversation, is the political agenda a broad sweep of gay rights, or is it a specific policy question of gay marriage, for example, or something else? Sometimes the agenda is just to learn how a group of people are thinking who really see the world differently than we do. So for instance, starting January 21st, the day after Inauguration Day, we began canvassing two areas in Los Angeles County that went very heavily for Donald Trump because we wanted to speak with voters who voted for Donald Trump. And we're very clear, uh, each of us, when we're canvassing, who we voted for. Uh, in my case, that would mean Hillary Clinton. But we really make it clear that we're genuinely interested in how everybody sees what's going on today, no matter who they voted for, Clinton or Trump or anyone else. And so the first part of the conversation is for us to try to see the situation of how they decided to cast their vote through their eyes and to understand what was really the paramount concern. And, and to gain their trust enough so that they will reveal their own internal processes sufficiently for you, which strikes me as a big hurdle. Yeah, to earn their trust, really. And the way we do that is by being honest mm. and vulnerable ourselves. Mm. So, for instance, when I would be canvassing earlier this year, 
and we ask people how satisfied they were with the election on a scale of zero to ten. Mm. And then I tell them who I voted for, ask who they voted for, and I ask why. Their first answer is usually vague, change. Interesting. A businessman will get things done, or, 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 or they didn't like Hillary Clinton. Right, right, right. Right? So people offer these very vague opinions. And then what's helpful is for me to ask, first of all, to repeat back that I heard the opinions. Mm. So it sounds like your concern was this, this, and this. When you were deciding how to vote, was there anybody on your mind who you love, yourself, a family member, somebody you really care about, who you're concerned how they're affected by politics today? And sometimes it would feel more appropriate for me to begin right then letting them know about who I was thinking of. Mm. Or sometimes they'll immediately tell me who they were thinking of. So in my case, I would talk, like if I was knocking on your door today, I would tell you about my sister Ivy. I'm 62, Ivy's 53. She was the baby of the family, but she's 53 now. And as we sit here right now, she's in Kabul. She's deployed for seven months in Afghanistan in a war zone. She's been in the Naval Reserve for a long time. This was always a possibility, but it's really scary to have your sister at age 53 in a war zone. And then I might tell them a lot more about that, or I might even just say that little bit and say, so when I think about how I'm going to vote in the future, My big concern is that we have people who are decision makers in office, who have good judgment, and who are stable, and who are wise about protecting the lives of the people we have there and putting them in harm's way only when there is a really compelling necessity to do so. We do not have that precedent. We do not have that Congress, so I'm concerned. And you reveal all of this in the course of knocking on my door. Oh, yeah. You tell me. You lay it out. And then I say, is there somebody... You lay out, including the partisan part. You say, you say it's not just that I care about that because of my sister and because of these, these major... I might get to that part later in the uh-huh. conversation, right. or it might be then and there. Mm. Because really, what it happens as often as not is I'll begin to tell this story even before I've completed it, they want to tell me their story. Right, they're, they're, right. Because right. you've, you've penetrated something. You've, pen- well, you've penetrated that, what did you call it, reputational? Pre- well, yeah, the, I think they know I'm not going to judge them because I'm vulnerable myself. And, and so I no longer look like somebody who's there to wag a finger. Right, right. And that's conveyed not just by the story, but my demeanor and right, right. body language. And really caring about these people. And I think that's the key, right? I, I grew up in the only Jewish family in Chillicothe, Ohio. Early on, I learned that uh, talking with people who see the world differently than me is a normal part of life. Hmm. It doesn't scare me. And it doesn't have to be unkind. Hmm. In fact, if you live in a small town, right, right. You, you, <laughs> kindness turns out to be really important. Right. It's an important currency, sure. 
So people then will tell me a story about themselves or their kids or a specific kid and I'll ask questions so that they get a chance to tell me the full story. And even if that's all that we accomplish is kind of a shocking thing because I think it, the beginnings of reflection can occur when people are talking about something real with emotional weight for them. And this story, unlike the opinions they offer initially, it is quite real. The way you're uh, relaying this process is indeed very compelling and uh, even moving. But my understanding is that fundamentally you have a political agenda. And so if I'm right, what's shocking me is not that you might be able to penetrate the it was a great term, I forgot, the reputational anxiety. I forgot what the word reputational was. Reputational protection. There you go, reputational protection. Because you're clearly very artful in doing this. And I mean, you must have a lot of training for your staff. It must be a very involved thing, because I, I see how, how deep it is. But my concern, as a partisan of yours, is like, this is great. I would love to do this at a cocktail party. I would love to do this with, all, with everyone I know and everyone who disagrees with me. But I need votes. I need to go, I need to reach tens of thousands of people. I need to shift congressional districts. I need to, and I'm thinking, my God, how do you reach enough people to make this happen? What, how does that work from a political strategic perspective? Yeah, you'd like a really speedy way to change people's minds. I want everyone to agree with me now. <laughs> I have terrible news for you, Josh. Uh-oh. Most, in fact, seemingly all, of the ways that conventional campaigns go about trying to change people's minds, don't do that. <laughs> and that's because what they have in common, overwhelmingly, even though they can look different, they can be mail or a TV ad, mm. or even somebody showing up at your door, but they really rely on telling. Yes. Right. I'm going to tell you what, what I think you don't already know, and I'm going to change your mind that way. I'm going to tell you how to be more like me <laughs> right now. <laughs> and after the age of two, that doesn't really work. I have teenagers. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> you convinced me. I <laughs> and so, and this isn't just my opinion. Two wonderful academics, David Brockman and Josh Kalla, the, their most recent paper is a meta-analysis of all of the rigorously measured attempts at persuasion. To change people's minds. Especially in a general election, mm. in a partisan general election. Right. And they found the average impact was... I'll use the technical term, bubkus. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. No. And yeah, and you're not shocked. Right. And and in fact, we all know. Right, because really. they, they're not changing my mind. That's for sure. When I get you know a Republican, uh, whatever. I mean, I'm a Democrat, and 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 my mind isn't changed by this stuff. I, I, I can, you can show me a million of anything, and I won't care. It it so. But canvassing slow. You're right, totally right. right. You're saying these yeah. conversations take ten to twenty minutes. Right. And how big's your staff? 
well, a staff of five and a couple hundred volunteers. Right. That's but a, even so, it's a big world. It's a right. It's a big, and, and you live in a major metropolitan area with millions of inhabitants. That's true. So why is it relevant? Is what you're asking. Okay. Why is it relevant? Where I live in L.A., I'm in driving distance of five congressional districts that elected Republicans to Congress and that voted for Hillary Clinton for president. One of them, District 49, represented by Daryl Issa, if 812 people had voted the other way, wow. he'd have lost. Wow. So we don't actually have to talk with everybody, Josh, because some people do agree with us. Right. In fact, in many of these areas, in District 49, a lot of them. Clearly, half. But even in the other areas, an awful lot of Republicans decided to vote for Hillary Clinton. Maybe the first time in their lives they decided to vote for a Democrat for president. Because of their qualms about Donald Trump. Well, we don't know. I don't know if anybody's really asked them. Huh. We're going to ask them because we really want to know, why did you do that? Who were you thinking of? You're somebody you love. Who were you thinking of when you did this thing that is sort of contrary to the habit you've developed? Right? And then, as they tell us, I, I think we're going to discover that there's something about Donald Trump that worries them something big enough so that they voted Democrat. And so when we... And, and crucially, something that we can then exploit for the next election. Because if it's just an observation for its own sake, I don't need you and your 200 volunteers and five staff members to canvas to tell me that. Because I know it's widely known that a lot of people have, a lot of Republicans, have deep qualms about Donald Trump. But you're telling me more than that. You're saying it's not just the information, because I don't need you to do that to get the information. You're telling me that you can shift something. We might be able to. We know that we've had a wonderful track record, lastingly changing hearts and minds around people's prejudice against lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. Mm. And that's a hard thing to do. When you look at... You know this because you do follow-up. Not only do we do follow-up, more importantly, we had independent researchers uh -huh. do a randomized control trial where we complied with a very rigorous protocol so they could measure... They could take your data. No, not our data. In other words, we would give them the voter list for an area. Uh, and They would, they would randomly, randomly assign uh, people to either get the voter treatment where we talked about transgender uh -huh. people, or they would get a placebo treatment where we talked about recycling. I see. Before we ever went and talked to anybody, the researchers measured where people stood. And then after we talked with them, they measured again a few days after, they measured a few weeks after, they measured three months after, they measured nine months after, and what they found it's not that everybody changes their of course. mind, but one in ten of these conservative voters who we speak with change their mind in a big way and in a way that persists. A durable way. That's right. So the interesting 
thing about deep canvassing, if we can figure out how to apply it to the way people decide to vote in a partisan election, right. there's this short-run desire right, that they'll vote for a Democrat for Congress. Yes. But there's a long-run desire as well that they're going to continue to, when they go to vote, essentially be much more open to the possibility right. that they could split their ticket or right. vote for... In that, other words, that the it's, factors that you want to call on yeah. that might shape their voting patterns, that they will continue to call on them, whatever these loving relationships might be, whatever, whatever it is that might inspire them to bring them closer to, to your perspective, that those things will remain in their consciousness when they make their choices. Yeah, they, and, and I think most of them will still be Republicans. Right, right, right. But they will be, uh, I'll just say, decent. Got it. You okay. can be decent and a Republican. I, I know. My mother was a Republican, right? <laughs> so you don't, so there, the other thing, right, that's different that you're noticing is I think there is an adversarial assumption built into a lot of the political discourse we currently have. Yes, very, very powerfully so. It does not serve us well. Right. It doesn't serve democracy well. In fact, I wonder if democracy can persist in the long run with the level of unkindness that currently characterizes our politics. I think, I think that that alone is a possibility. To pe just, just caring about that is a way to penetrate uh, some of that reputational defensiveness that you yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that landed with you. Yeah, that completely landed with you. It, it, it's, it's a fascinating term. You know, the notion of reputation, a good name, as we say in Hebrew, Shem Tov, is one of the, one of the great uh, principles in Judaism in any ethical system where we appreciate that really, at the end of the day, that's all you got. And that people should care about that even in what they know intellectually, factually, they know that they're probably never going to see your canvasser again. They know that, as a strictly speaking, as a reputational concern, there is no concern because nobody cares because you're not you're not going to see these people again. And yet they care. They care about their reputation to a stranger. That is a human bond that, to me, is very moving to encounter through your method and your work. S simply to reaffirm that bond, because your work depends on that bond, that someone should care what a stranger thinks about them, a stranger whom they will never encounter in all probability again. That, to me, is a deep human statement. Yeah. And we're beholden to one another is what it amounts to, even when the, the, the ties that bind are not so self-evident. I find that very... I find that very encouraging. Yeah, and there's a corollary to it that's on my mind, too, which is all of us, right? We're capable, and at times we are, of being our best selves. And all of us at times are not our best selves. I think most people would prefer to be their best selves more <laughs> of the time. And I think they care about that a lot. I agree. I agree completely. Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, 
selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. The beautiful thing about us giving people the chance to reflect and really notice for themselves that there's a disjunction between their real lived experience and how they really treat people and how they really want to be treated. There's a disjunction between that and their opinions, and their opinions are much less kind. Right. right. And so this gives them a chance, reflection, their reflection gives them the chance to decide to be their best self in this realm in a way that they're not. That they haven't had to. And I said confront at the beginning, and you corrected me, saying you know, that your work isn't confrontational in nature. And I guess I want to push back. It is confrontational, but it's a very, very non-confrontational method. Because anytime we confront ourselves, it's pretty violent. I mean, internally, we it's hard. It's hard to reach that best self when you realize, if you're honest enough with yourself, that what you've acted, what you've actually done, decisions you've made, are not living up to that. That's that's a, a violence of, of sorts, a, an emotional and a cognitive violence. And you're asking, you're precipitating that violence. Uh, if, if there can be such a thing as a constructive violence, this would be it. And to precipitate that, even to be a party to that, is challenging because people are going to resist. And so I find it very thoughtful and sophisticated the way that you can precipitate what is something we all shy from and nevertheless, um, you know, elicit it um, kindly and gently. That's, it's, quite a, it's quite a feat. Well, there's something we don't require people to do. If I'm talking with somebody who voted for Donald Trump, I'm not asking them to renounce their vote Mm -hmm. or to say I was wrong. Right, 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 right. I, I, I don't, first of all, it's too late for them to revise their ballot. Yes, indeed. So there'd be no point, but also, I I think when you talk about uh, how hard it is for us to change our mind, it's a little bit easier if we don't have to, I guess, publicly confess Mm -hmm. that we've failed. I'm not quite sure how to say it. The other thing that I think we have a chance to communicate that makes this feel less violent. All of us change our minds sometimes. Not very often, but sometimes. So there's an opportunity to share that, right? Often I'm not gonna end up talking about this at the door. By the point in the conversation that we're talking about how they view the situation now that we've talked and they've reflected, often they're doing most of the talking. But my point of view about being gay has changed. I'm a gay guy, right? But from age six, when I knew I was gay, till age 25, when I ever told anybody, uh, I thought being gay was terrible. It was a really hard thing to change my mind. That's, in some ways, a kind of self-serving story because 
the happy ending right, is that right. I'm happy right, now. Right. But if somebody was to ask me, what have I really changed my mind about? I've, I've changed my mind about religion. Hmm. How so? I grew up uh, in a Jewish family, and both my mom and dad were Jewish, and they were both raised Orthodox, but they really raised us in a secular household. Mm. And my Jewish identity mostly owes to the fact that other people in the community just reacted uh, in a pretty significant and continual way to the fact that I was Jewish. So I have memories from every year of my life of people noticing my Jewishness. Right. Mostly not terrible stories, but they're, they're powerful because mm. I was always aware that I was different. But I think uh, my perspective on religion as somebody who likes to be rational mm. was to uh, think, well, religion doesn't really have much to it. Mm. I think I just viewed it as almost... Uh, an epiphenomenon not really related to what our species needed to be doing. Not at the heart of our business. No. and Maybe quaint. <laughs> yeah, and peripheral to things that are real. Right. Mm. And my perspective on that changed in my 30s when I started working with communities of faith with the Industrial Areas Foundation both churches and synagogues. But I remember in particular in 1996 and 97 working intensively at St. Paul Community Baptist Church in East New York, Brooklyn, and noticing to my great surprise as I went to worship there and as we went canvassing from the church, uh, noticing how faith gave these congregants the confidence to go out and talk with strangers door to door and it really served the same function and did it exceedingly well for them that the optimism and rationality I grew up with gave to me mm. And so for the first time, I had to consider the possibility that there was an equivalence in their value. Mm. It was a shocking thing to discover that. A lot of people, by the way, come to an appreciation of the value of religion without necessarily challenging their notion of its fantasism. In other words, you described your own attitude, and if I can reflect back to you, as, you know, you, you thought of religion as not really real, uh, implying that it's sort of a fantasy. A lot of people can appreciate its power without conceding its reality. That's right. Those are two separate matters. But I would say that both are areas where my reconsideration mm. began and probably is still underway. Mm. But in, One hopes it's continually underway. Well, yeah. And, but in 2016, in the run-up to the November election, our whole team from the Leadership Lab and the Los Angeles LGBT Center, we moved to Cleveland, Ohio to do nonpartisan voter turnout with Greater Cleveland Congregations, which is a group of a couple dozen churches and synagogues 
and other groups. They have other groups involved too, including a mosque. But mm -hmm. in this work to increase voter turnout, it was churches and synagogues. It, it was profoundly effective. It's the most I've ever worked with synagogues. Rabbi Josh Caruso mm -hmm. at Fairmount Temple is just this uh, beautiful man. Mm -hmm. If I lived in Cleveland, I realized, I'd want to join his temple, <laughs> and I'd want Ain't him as song, my right? rabbi. That's great. You know? And I've met other Jewish yeah. leaders I really like, but there's a way in which he brought Jewish ethics to life in a way that felt compelling to me and obviously to his colleagues yes. like Rabbi Nosenchuk and also this wonderful group of the people congregants, at the temple. Sure, yeah. sure. So uh, in a way, I think part of the reason that deep canvassing speaks to me and why I have something to contribute to an idea like that mm -hmm. uh, comes from a little bit of reflection mm -hmm. on my own and an awareness that changing your mind mm -hmm. doesn't have to be a disgraceful thing where you feel violence has been done to you or you've done it to yourself. That's really what made me right, take my, this my formulation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I don't <clears throat> feel like violence was done to me. I feel like I had uh, a chance to see something more clearly. Lillian Hellman, right, used the term pentimento. Yes. When a painter so repents, yes. and you can see the outline of the painting underneath, right. but the right. painting that's intended is different. The right. painter changed right. her or his mind. So it feels more like that to me. I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to speak to you. It was really a wonderful pleasure to meet you and get to know you and learn about your work. And uh, if you ever want to plug into L.A. Jewish life, You've got a friend at the Reading College, and I can direct you to amazing rabbis and wonderful congregations of powerful conscience and Jewish love and Jewish expression of things that you obviously care very much about. I'll look forward to visiting. Thank you again. I really appreciate coming and you spending the time with us. Sure, Josh. It's right. a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.